So this evening's talk is about spiritual urgency. The Pali word is sambega. What are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat like this particular one? So beginning this evening with a few questions. Questions that humans have felt and asked forever, regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings, we could call them, these murmurings of the heart, the deep questionings and the yearnings that have been going on for as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is death about? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to really be truly happy and truly at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully, peacefully in this life with all of the challenges, all of the difficulties in this challenging world? changing world and with all of the challenges within me all of the changes within me and the challenges around me and the changes all around me what is it that brings me to practice I suspect that these kinds of questions have shown up for each of you at various times in your life in both subtle ways and probably also at times in more overt ways. Our practice isn't about getting caught up in mulling or kind of stewing over these questions. But rather the questions can be taken in as a motivating force and an inspiration towards dropping more and more deeply into our practice. So, as I said, this evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken, the Pali term being samvega, which is most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually, it's a term that's fairly difficult to uh, render into English because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force or the energy of Samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And then the text goes on to say that Samvega is, a one, is about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one. And then followed by 
the systematic effort of one so moved. Samvega is the urgency to practice, the urgency to awaken. And it's an energy that's not at all fraught with uh, tension or a kind of frantic or obsessive quality. Rather, it's a quality of the mind and the heart that very often comes out of some degree of understanding of the way of things. Some degree of understanding of the natural laws of how it is, which for some of you may have felt, been first sensed or felt as the endlessness, the round and round and round in daily life. Or for others maybe felt through a sense or some degree of perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, and the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Or some vega may be experienced through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties of the suffering in life in general or more specifically in one's own life. For some, the urgency to practice, the urgency urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long accustomed or maybe a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or maybe directly experiencing bias or prejudice in relationship to race or culture or economic circumstances or maybe gender or age or sexual preference. With these experiences and the accompanying painful mental states attended by some vague or maybe not so vague sense that it really doesn't have to be this way. There's another way. There's got to be another way. And this urge, this inner urge to move towards this potential other way. When Samvega first stirs us, it can sometimes be an emotional state that might be somewhat difficult or disturbing until it finds a clear and a healthy direction to connect to. While at the same time, this stirring energy of Samvega has the power in itself to move us in a clear and healthy direction. A clear and healthy direction towards finding a wholesome direction and then connecting within that wholesome direction. And I think it's quite important to note that all along the way of our practice, Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe 
samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way or happenings that I'm just simply an observer of. Recently such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are occurring in this world right now and the violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this confusion and misunderstanding. Samvega is the movement of the heart, an inner response, an inner response to various occurrences that happen both within and outside of formal practice times. For me it's really an inner response to let go deeper and deeper into my practice. It's really this flavor of Samvega that moves me, stirs me again and again and again towards letting go of, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it might sometimes be experienced as an urgency or sometimes as an ardency, an inspired heart and mind, a passion, we could say, for spiritual practice, something that I'm sure some of you, or if not all of you, have felt at times, and at least in part, maybe what brought you to this retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me. And I think it's probably quite safe to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the great honor to teach with. This is really one of the wonderful aspects of all of us here right now being here together both Dhamma students, yogis, and teachers. Living in a community such as this, even for just a short while, we move and we inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So, more specifically, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing. And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, moving us towards sustaining and deepening in our practice? What might move us outwardly? What might move us inwardly towards this sense of spiritual urgency? Again, what moved you to come here to practice in this retreat.
There's a, a beautiful account that Sayadaw mentioned on our first evening. A beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven uh, in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years, or during actually, all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding, dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphor. Considering the possibility that these four heavenly messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not quite so common in our time and our culture, the many quite and obvious uh, truth seekers that were so much a part of the place uh, and the culture, the time that Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever, ever occurred before. To such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches, the ease, and the great comfort of his life. He was urgently moved to search for the truth, inspired and moved to be liberated inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the familiar habits of his life and the overt suffering that touched him so deeply and so profoundly during those few morning, early morning chariot rides. Isn't it really the same case with us? That most of the time, with the many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both inwardly and outwardly, that we've reacted. Maybe reacted by ignoring them. Or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways or even by pretending or believing that something else is happening. Until somehow, at least one of these messengers touches us deeply. And then we respond rather than react. We respond, in fact, in similar ways as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a a different path 
than constantly feeling overrun with maybe sadness, anguish, or fear, or attachment, or anger, or confusion in relationship to the occurrences of life. Our closest surroundings are full of stirring things, stirring in the sense of samvega. And if we don't generally perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that in fact render our vision dull and our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen occasionally in relationship to the Buddhist teaching. We may have encountered times of powerful intellectual or emotional or spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and practices. But at times, even this impetus can lose some of its freshness and its impelling force as maybe some of you have experienced occasionally. The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practice by turning to the fullness of life within us and around us, which if we look really carefully, constantly illustrates the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is, and then showing us its cause, its origin. This being a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to, which is the second noble truth. And the third truth, the third noble truth, the truth that there's an end to this suffering, the solution, so to say, the solution being to not cling, but rather to see things truly, clearly, and to simply be with them as they are. And the fourth truth of being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path that each of you, each of all of us, are engaged in walking along at your own pace, right here, right now, in this very life. As some of you certainly have experienced and know, there can be a moment of direct vision within our own body-mind experience of these truths. Or quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one of more of one or more of these truths can show up, for instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear, anger, grief, yearning, or clinging, and the self-identification 
that's embedded in each of these habitual reactive patterns. Or insight, wisdom might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long accustomed sight of some manifestation of poverty maybe or a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone who you regularly have contact with or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one or one's own illness or one's own bodily discomfort or myriad other flavors of experience each having the power to startle us so to say to promote a reflective response and to stir a sense of urgency in our resolve to practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering through seeing our own experiences of body and mind directly clearly and more and more subtly we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing impermanent ephemeral selfless and impersonal nature of things something that is of course very available to each of us in any moment for instance a moment of directly experiencing and knowing the impermanent nature of things or a moment of knowing that it's all impersonal it's all all of it a nature mental and physical phenomena just naturally arising and passing away according to conditions with these moments of seeing and knowing we're often urgently stirred maybe inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path to go deeper towards the ending of suffering or maybe to recommit to our practice at various times samvega asks us we could say to step out of our everyday ordinary conditioned habits to step out of our conditioned inertia we each have many many stories many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life and of course many stories within our life as a whole stories that in fact exhibit the this knowing and manifestation of samvega and it's often a part of what's heard in talking with you during practice interviews there are a number of wonderful uh, stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more a vital spiritual urgency and the stirring being done by the buddha himself or the stirring being done by one of the arhats 
the enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas. Devas being uh, beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for sometimes long lengths of time in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet completely free of suffering. There's a section, a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods where various woodland dwelling devas approach certain bhikkhus, certain monks who are practicing in those same woodland thickets. And I'd like to share a few of these encounters. <coughs> On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for a day of practice. But all the while he kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the Davis speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man the desire for people, then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And in this case, meaning not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things, lust for food, lust for various objects and various experiences. And the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of the way of the good. Hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust, so a bhikkhu, a yogi, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's Parinibbana, after his death. And his closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain arhanship before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. So Ananda had gone uh, to the Kosala country and entered into a forest abode to meditate. But when the people in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the laws of impermanence or in the law of impermanence. 
the forest-dwelling deva who lived in this same area, aware that the upcoming Buddhist council uh, couldn't su- could succeed only if Ananda attended as an arhant, came to provoke and to inspire Ananda to resume his meditation practice. And so this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is Ananda speaking. Having entered the thicket, at the, at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, because Ananda was the Buddhist cousin, he had the same uh, family name of Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. And I picked this particular dialogue because though, of course, we're not in the same position as Ananda was, um, we're certainly often, quite often, uh, caught up, uh, quite seduced into the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and internally and neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things. To me this little verse really beautifully and clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. And not to neglect, of course, what needs to be attended to, but to know, to really know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe inappropriately into the hullabaloo. And so another verse. On one occasion a certain bhikkhu was dwelling in Visali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion an all-night party was being held in Visali. Then that bhikkhu, lamenting as he heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Vasali, recited this verse. This is the bhikkhu speaking. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu and desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And the bhikkhu speaking, As you dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state. A forest dweller subsiding on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then the bhikkhu, 
stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming as well as thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva who also inhabited this same woodland out of compassion and wanting to stir up some vega in him spoke these verses to the bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning having relinquished, having let go of attending to things as permanent, as self, and as desirable because they're pleasurable, having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully, meaning attending to the true nature of things, the true characteristics, with a very careful attention. Yanisomanisikara in Pali. Attending to them as impermanent, as non-self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, and in this case on the Buddha, on the Dhamma, and on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. And then when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then the bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse I'd like to share with you is about uh, a bhikkhu who, after returning uh, from his alms rounds, alms round, and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation uh, subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. This is the Deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, sir, are a thief of scent. (laughs) And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? 
one who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough, rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the Deva responds, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing, nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere's, a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O oh spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds, We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. A surprise ending. <laughs> then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. It seems that um, amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and now, it seems that things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses time and crosses cultures. The teachings are really, truly timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samvega is kept alive <clears throat> or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy, virya, and courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith, sada in Pali, and confidence, pasada in Pali. Each of these qualities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are essential in helping us to break through what for some of you might be some sense of timidity or maybe hesitation or fear or doubt or maybe some degree of complacency in your practice. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. In speaking to a group of his disciples in one sutta, he says, Rouse yourselves. Sit up. What good is there in sleeping? Meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion. For those afflicted with disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted with dis-ease, struck by the arrow of craving. What sleep is there? Rouse yourself. Sit up. Resolutely train yourself. 
to attain peace. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, confusion, and anguish. And the Buddha goes on to say, negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over, crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the, on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency. Samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of this unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment-to-moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of suffering the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there somewhere not coming from some outside experience or some outside being, but that it's coming from in here, in here, in the craving and clinging and fear present in our own mind, our own heart. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to suffering. That there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way that, to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, noble qualities of heart. Moral, ethical responsibility, sila concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, 
joy and happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, and confidence. All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency, samvega, that led us at one point to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament has a practical solution, a a solution that's within the powers of every human being, a solution that we begin to have a growing faith in. Possibly if we read and study the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But really most importantly, that we come to know out of our own direct experience through our own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency, that develops out of samvega. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows and develops and deepens, for many of us, it in a sense is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you uh, this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary uh, writer Annie Dillard. A story that I personally have found uh, to be very inspiring and that evoked uh, uh, quite a sense of spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many years ago and that continues to move me every time I read it. So these are a few excerpts uh, from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes. I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It felled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. 
the world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. That was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing, and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind full of data and my spirit with pleadings, but he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes, but the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked, and ingested directly like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even, till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds, and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn to live, or to remember how to live. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In the light of Samvega, it feels appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death, words offered to his monastic 
and lay disciples to instill a sense of samvega in them, to exhort them to keep going along the path. And this particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from a Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I've found to be quite inspiring. O bhikkhus, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always, wholeheartedly, seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or non-moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. In closing this evening's talk, we come back around to our opening questions. As the poet Mary Oliver, in her own particular way, poses some of these questions in her poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last? and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.